Highness, the Prince of Wales, Your Majesty. Thank you. It's done. They did it. Where? In the nursery. The nursery? Well, hardly the most romantic setting. Did you get on one knee? No, I didn't. I'm surprised by the question. Why? I thought in terms of rank, the Prince of Wales only ever knelt before the Sovereign. He didn't say that. What did you say? I said it's a proposal of marriage, dear, not a show of strength. <laughs> <laughs> After all that, she at least accept. <laughs> yes. Yes. What did she say? Yes. Please. That it was the happiest moment of her life. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this show will follow the fourth season of the Netflix original series, The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved, and diving deep into the stories. Today, we're talking about episode three, called Fairy Tale. It's 1981, and Prince Charles has proposed to Lady Diana Spencer. The Queen decides to move the 19-year-old bride into Buckingham Palace to prepare her for life as a royal, while Charles jets off on an overseas tour. In his absence, Diana discovers the true nature of Charles's friendship with Camilla, and as the wedding fast approaches, what began as a fairy tale turns into a nightmare. We will cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't watched episode three yet, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up, we'll hear from the costume design team, Sid Roberts and Amy Roberts. I just shut my eyes and I thought, okay, imagine the wedding dress. Watches anybody remember about that dress? We'll also hear from the incredible young actor who plays Princess Diana, Emma Corrin. And they took all the furniture out and then just blasted Cher. And I could just dance and it was so much wow. fun. It was so much fun. But first, I spoke with director Ben Karen. Can we talk about Diana, please? We can. How did you feel going into this season, knowing that this was a focus of this season. It's not the entire focus, but it's very much kind of a big storyline of this season. How did you feel about going in there and the story of her that you were going to tell? Terrified. I could be one of the most famous women in the world and everyone has a different opinion about who their Diana is. So you feel like you're exposed to that. So it began with finding the right actor to play Diana. And she's perfect. She is <laughs> absolutely perfect. I think she's perfect. Emma Corrin, that is. And it wasn't just that she looked like her, because in a way, we've tried very hard not to cast people who are yeah. just lookalikes. Mm -hmm. She has that amazing ability to have strength of character and, at the same time, huge amount of vulnerability. Oh, there's so much I want to talk to you about this this particular episode of Fairy Tale as well, because I think that there are just wonderful moments where you really dive into trying to explore 
how alone she is, first and foremost. That scene where she comes into the room and she gets it all wrong. Oh, oh whoa. Yeah. That's like... The umbilical cord has been cut. Literally, she's sort of going down that staircase and she's been handed over to the firm who <laughs> take her to the palace and then she goes to meet the family. And she walks in and she gets it all wrong. She gets all the etiquette wrong, the royal etiquette wrong. And it's painful. It's so painful. It was so painful so to, to film and it was painful to watch and it was painful for everyone there in the room to make that and perform that. Now, I've been in situations where that's just part of, hey, welcome to our family. This is what we're like. And this is this <laughs> is sort of part of what we do to each other. We oh, yeah. rib each other and get used to it because yeah. we like to do this and it's fun. So they don't see any menace to that at all. It's just, you, you're just going to have to... Um, they do the same with Thatcher. They do the same with Thatcher. And it's quite ghastly and it feels really mean and it probably is really mean. And you feel for Diana, she is the, I mean, you know, the, the sacrificial lamb in the centre of this family who are sort of openly mocking her, pulling her leg in terms of getting it wrong. And it is very, very painful. Sorry. Your Majesty. Um, Your Majesty. Royal Highness, I didn't see you there. Evidently not. I was the one telling the story. You ruined with your entrance. Sorry. Uh, uh, this one next. Honestly. Sir, Your Royal Highness, if it's the first greeting, right. then, sir. Now me. Ma'am. You don't curtsy to her. She's not royal. Just grand. Poor Susan. <laughs> so sorry. Thank goodness we've got your grandmother to sort all this out. She's like a regimental sergeant major, aren't you? When required. Urgently required, I'd say, on tonight's showing. <laughs> You'll iron all this out in no time. Ma'am. Anyway, where was I? Being rushed through the streets of Manila. When you are recreating specific things that we've seen, you know, that have been on TV. So that famous interview that they did um, post-engagement in that push, she's in that... Whatever in love means. Yeah. Even though I've seen that, mm. felt like I was watching it for the first time. That's good. But how do you approach that in having a kind of a creative spin on something that is has been so watched? It's really hard, those scenes, for all of us, for the actors, for the directors, for probably the writer, because for exactly that reason, everyone's got their version of that scene. And in that moment, it was, it was about taking the camera's eye, the global press attention, and almost going inside the, the camera lens and feeling like we were part of history watching this moment. What can you tell us about the actual wedding? We're not that far on yet, but for now, we're delighted, really. Mm. Well, I see you're going to bring a deep and lasting joy to the nation. And if I may say, you both look very much in love. Oh, yes, absolutely. Whatever in love means. You could almost call the film Whatever in Love Means. 
<laughs> you know, if it wasn't fairy tale, you could say whatever love means. And I think uh, th- just what whatever in love means. Like, I mean, in that moment, he says that like he's sort of caught off guard. Mm. They're both kind of caught off guard, and he sort of just comes out and they're like, "What? What, what do you mean? Hang on, what?" And that's and so such a massive moment. And you're sort of just left with that silence afterwards when they walk along that corridor, and then and he's like, "Okay, I'll see you at the airport tomorrow." Yep. Okay. Yeah. There's no romance there at all. But it's really weird because I sort of think Charles is a bit of a romantic. Yeah. But he, in that moment there, he, I mean, I guess you're asking royals to express emotions in front of millions and millions of people. You know, I mean, they uh, probably the furthest they go is they go stand on the balcony and have a kiss and everyone's like, whoa! <laughs> but like to declare your <laughs> love in that moment, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say four. I love her in front of someone because that would be, you know, we don't do that. We don't do that. So, you know, maybe, maybe there's a bit of that going on, but there's also probably a bit of like, I hardly know her. How on yeah. earth could I tell you that I mean we've gone on a few dates the way that Peter has written Charles I think has really allowed us to see the complexities of the character yeah and what the crime does really well is show us the origins of those complexities you know here we've got someone who wasn't allowed to be with the person he loves and I think Josh's performance really shows through this pain and internal turmoil it's really painful it's interesting you talk about the origins because when i when the origins of the crown and that that idea of love true love and not being able to be with the person that you love and i think back to margaret mm-hmm. and i think back to peter townsend and i think about that that pain and that struggle which stretches all the way into when i see helena and i see her looking at these Charles and Diana yeah. in St Paul's for the rehearsal, rehearsal yeah. and you see her looking at that moment and then later on we come to the Jacobean scene where she sort of says they can't get married and you you feel that writing all the way back to season one too. It's extraordinary, extraordinary how these stories can keep repeating themselves and much like our own families. The idea is that we are repeating the patterns of maybe fathers and mothers mm-hmm. and grandfathers before that. And I think that's what makes it so relatable when you see these stories play out. And I think Josh has done such a remarkable job of showing us the true complexity of what it's like to be in that position and the question of duty mm-hmm. there's a big theme running through yeah. fairy tale is duty and we you hear that horn that comes in throughout the episode in many ways that's symbolic of that duty that he is a reminder of what he is being asked to do In this episode, Diana's lonely new life at the palace takes its toll on her mental health. As it becomes clear, she's suffering from an eating disorder called bulimia. I asked Ben how he approached portraying this aspect of Diana's life with authenticity and care on screen. I I had first-hand experience growing up of a family member had bulimia and I, at a very young age, I just didn't know what or how to 
deal with that. I was I was young, I was naive, I was uneducated around what bulimia is, and I, and at the time, I think I just didn't understand it. Mm. And so, doing this right was really important. So we, you know, we spoke to a lot of people about where that comes from, and it's it, it's not just the vomiting. Sometimes bulimia is just shown to be that, and it's really not. That's just the very very end of this process. But why does it happen and what's going through emotionally why someone would want to do that? And and I guess for anyone that's in that scenario, their feeling of, of lack of control, wherever they are in that, for Diana, in that palace alone, that one of the things that she could try and get back herself, that she could own, that she could have control of was eating and the feeling that one gets from eating is associated with sort of a high mm-hmm. a sugar rush a high joy. and a joy and then the immediate after effect of then wanting to get rid of that and actually that also is is a continuation of weirdly that high from from expunging that and then sort of staying in that and then you get the lows afterwards so it was really important to to show that process truthfully but also to find the right moment in the film where it felt that that could sort of happen. Mm. And the second time is after the lunch with Camilla. And that's a really interesting scene because the food part of that was never really written in the scene. And I remember talking to Peter about how Diana has a really complicated relationship with food and Camilla doesn't have a complicated Mm. relationship with food. And so that idea, I just thought that idea of her going in there and sitting in a restaurant that serves starters and desserts must have been hell. And so you we start the scene and it's two women trying to sort of understand who the other one is, where their territory is, which one's a threat, which one's not a threat. And then there's a sort of turn in the scene where we or Diana realises the closeness of Camilla to Charles. So you see yourself living more in London than in the country? Why do you ask? Just curious. Mm. I'm sorry, I can't stay for coffee. Oh, then let me get this. Absolutely not. I'm the senior party here. Oh, please. Well, let's go Dutch. Good idea. I'm all for sharing. It's so tragic to watch all these things that she discovers leading up to that wedding day. And I think that you are all so brilliant in the fact that you cover the wedding Mm. in the way that you cover it. Because everyone's so familiar with the wedding itself, what people aren't familiar and why the crown is so good at that is what was happening behind closed doors? What was it like on the day before the wedding? What was it like on the morning of, of the wedding? And then we have that amazing voice from the Archbishop. Put that against the imagery of Charles there, ready dressed to step forward and do his duty. And then finally we see Diana in this, this dress, this dress that is sort of suffocating her. It's so big, it feels suffocating her inside there. And then this walk away 
which feels really ominous in a way. We'll hear from the phenomenal Emma Corrin about playing Princess Diana on the show a little bit later. But first, I paid a virtual visit to the Crown's costume department to ask costume designer Amy Roberts with assistant costume designer and head buyer Sid Roberts about Diana's iconic style journey. Almost more than any other character, Diana's done this journey, which is going to carry on in the next season. But you really go from that pretty, shy girl, just wearing ordinary bobbly jumpers, creased skirts, having a good time. And then she meets Charles, and then she's taken to the palace, and she gets got out, I think. Well, I think you always coin the term palacized. She gets <laughs> yeah. palacized, which I, I think is that. a good one. Because there is this like slight Earl's Court, Sloan Ranger, Liberty Print, young girl. And then gradually, gradually, when that relationship's starting to go toxic, the enormity of what she's got herself into, that royal world which is so tough Mm. I think she slowly started very slowly to flex her muscles and put on some armour there's one piece of clothing in particular that I'd love to ask you about it's the I mean, I'm going to describe it as the llama jumper. It's the bright pink sort of Peruvian pattern jumper with llamas on it and coloured stripes, which we see in, I think it's episode two, as she leaves Balmoral. And I've got to say, it is strikingly similar to the one that I remember her being photographed in of the real Diane at the time. I mean, there's a lot in this whole season that took my breath away, but it was like... That's the jumper! (laughs) And actually, that's the one that we had made. So we got a pattern of that, selected all the colours, really specifically to make it, whereas the sheep jumper is actually, was loaned to us by the women who had originally made it. They got in touch with us and said, do you want this, the jumper that she actually wore? Wow. So I think the one she actually wore was in the V&A, but they gave us um, another one from the time. So yeah, the Peruvian jumper actually wasn't the original but we had it made when you see her in it i know the reference for that is always when she's with with charles probably in scotland i think Mm. but we found a photo when she was just kicking around london you know chelsea or something and she's wearing that jumper so it was just a jumper she had in her cupboard and so we were able to use it in different situations. She's so famous and photographed, but her outfits are so iconic. Not not all of them, but so many of them. Is it a fine line between when you're trying to replicate something, but give it a spin or a different fabric or, you know, it's got to fit the actor sort of thing? The big elephant in the room was always going to be the, the wedding dress. I think for me... I just shut my eyes and I thought, okay, imagine the wedding dress. 
watches anybody remember about that dress? So it's the colour, the volume, big sleeves and a huge great train. So I think let's get that across. And that hopefully will do it. Our job is to make a big nod towards it. What we did at the very beginning is read the script and then I think we mapped out the moments where it did feel appropriate to do more of a a replication. If you go there for those moments, it also means that in the other quieter moments or the private moments, it can allow you to have slightly more imagination and hopefully bring people there with you because you've built a trust in going, this is accurate and this is what... So, So it allows for a different space for us in other places. Well, I love how even that first time that they meet where she's in character from A Midsummer Night's Dream and how you have chosen to to dress her for that. I think that's just, it's so beautiful and it's such a a kind of almost wonderful interpretation of where she is as a, a very young girl. That was, like most of these visuals, was given to us by Peter Morgan's writing. I mean... That was all on the page of this strange fairy midsummer night string creature. And so what a gift. First meeting with Diana is that and that final look of her, mm. that very final shocking scene. Look at that journey. Yeah, we spoke about that, didn't we, in terms of Diana being the one with the clearest kind of sartorial trajectory, like there's such a difference. Everybody else is more settled, so there isn't that kind of arc, that 10-year where you really see the difference between somebody growing up in the public eye. They grow Mm -hmm. up, their taste changes. And you really see a lot of that in episode three, Fairy Tale. We see her from being at home with her flatmates to the engagement and moving into the palace. And also that scene with Camilla, where they go for lunch. Can you talk a little bit about that particular scene and and the decisions that were made on how th- these two characters would dress and what it almost tells us about them and the dynamic and the relationship? And In the last season, we'd seen Camilla as slightly... Super confident, but not grown up yet. So this was a scene where we felt she was absolutely top dog in this situation. Mm. In this restaurant, she'd chosen it. She liked the food. And she was going to wield this power. So she had a great, 80s suit, not wildly fabulous, but she's not the best dresser in the world. But innately, you know, the strong shoulders. And so against that, we had Diana looking, I think and hope, really awkward. So the suit looks ever so slightly too big to make her look sort of vulnerable and shy and I mean what a 
horrible position to be. So that was the aim. Mm. It's almost like she's playing dress up in a way, isn't totally. it? Totally. Yeah. I'm going to put this grown up, bit middle aged suit on, and it's, this is not working. And I'm just feeling wretched and awful and actually worse and worse by the minute. And finally, it's time to hear from the breakout star of season four of The Crown, Emma Corrin. I was so excited to sit down with Emma towards the end of filming in her first interview about the show. I began by asking about the casting process. Yeah, it was absolutely bizarre. My agent's one of the coolest, most low-key, doesn't stress out people. <laughs> and I got this call from her and she sounded so weird on the phone. I got this, um, <clears throat> I got this call from uh, Nina Gold's office and... They've got like five girls who they're reading for for Camilla and they're chemistry testing them with Josh O'Connor and they want to bring someone in to read for Diana and they've asked if you're available. They just need someone to read her lines. Yeah. But, you know, you're going to be in the room with all the producers and the directors and casting directors. And when I first met my agent, we were talking about dream jobs and I'd loved season one and two of The Crown. I was just like, yeah, well... I feel like Diana would be the dream. You said that then? Yeah. Oh, my God. I said that then in our very first meeting when I hadn't even signed with her. 2018, Christmas of 2018. Wow. Yeah, and so this call was mad. And then she said, well, you know, it's kind of perfect because it's a complete no-pressure situation. Absolutely, yeah. We've talked about how we think you would be maybe be right for this role so why don't you go in and treat it like an audition but also it's not because there's no pressure on you so do you prepped for it i prepped for it yeah yeah, yeah it was and bizarre. literally blew their socks off i don't know <laughs> I just, you know what it was so much fun and of course i hadn't i mean i just graduated uni i'd i hadn't done a job when i went in and did that and then halfway through the director said oh do you, do you want to work on the scene a bit for diana and i was like oh, okay I remember finding the whole thing baffling because I didn't know what... I didn't know particularly that that was abnormal. Yeah. I, but I felt that something had shifted in the room and I called my agent afterwards. I was like, Maya, I think, I think they might have liked me. I don't know. I think something happened. She was like, Emma, you can't do this. There's no point getting your hopes <laughs> up. They are so far from casting this part right now. Talk up to a very good experience and just leave it. Good advice. Very good advice. And I think until the day I was literally offered the part she continued to be my I would get excited and hopeful because it was about a eight months or so from that point to getting the part back when you watched that first se- series and you were like I want to play mm. what, why did you want to play Diana why was it in your head so <laughs> sounds so weird so my mum when she was younger looked exceptionally like Diana and when Diana passed away the same day my mum got on the train and people fainted because they thought that it was her Oh my God. Um, it was a th- it was the thing at school that people said that my mum was actually Diana, and that it was this thing that followed me throughout my life. Weirdly, yeah. but not in any particular significant way. But it felt like there was something of a I don't know, like a presence, just a presence. That's yeah. exactly the right word. I was going to yeah. say spirit, but it's not as good. As, it's not as big as that. It was like a presence. <laughs> and then obviously, I loved the crown and. You know, if they kept making series, I was like, I assume they're going to get to that point. And yeah, I think it had maybe been someone in my family who'd mentioned it as a joke. Imagine if that happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who's laughing now? Who's laughing, exactly. <laughs> so you get the call, you've got the job. Mm. What was your prep then from pre the cameras rolling of 
working with this fantastic different departments that help. Oh, fantastic team. So, you know, whether that's costume, who are just you know, the best and... Best um, people. But then also the dialect coaches yeah. and movement as well, because there's one scene in, you know, the, the engagement mm-hmm. press conference. Mm. You feel yourself almost watching it mimicking you sort of thing because that's what she did. That was the power yeah. that she had of pulling you in and kind of being with her. And yeah. you just, you nail it. <laughs> Thank you, you nail it. Well, it was a lot of it was a lot of work and amazing, as you say, incredible people to be working with. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh, this, I just feel like I've learned so much. Because yeah, with Dana, it's so in voice and body language are you almost don't need to say anything. <laughs> you could do a lot, and I think actually I do do a lot with Josh. Yeah, over the shoulder. Yeah, over the shoulder and the head tilt, which is a classic her thing. In terms of research, yeah, did you dive deep or did you kind of hold back? Because it's just it's a ra- it's a rabbit hole. It's really, such it? a rabbit hole, and especially with Diana, because mm. there are so many you could read. You could read endlessly about her life. I'm basically a big nerd, and I got very excited by the fact that there's a research team. What a fantastic job! Yeah, they gave me this like huge A4 lever arch file binder. So I read that, and I read one or two bios. Tell you what has been on Netflix. Diana, in her own words, was my absolute. My Bible is basically what I used completely. So I've watched, and that kind of takes the most, the biggest moments from her life. Yeah. Apart from that, I then got a bit saturated with it. Yeah. You You can only read up to one, to such a point, and it kind of stopped being that useful. We were joking to Josh about it, about the fact that his mum texts him after an episode and goes, okay, did this really happen? Yeah, exactly. This is Peter's interpretation. That's the thing. You have to take what you can from the research, but also there's so much more that you discover actually just doing it. I'm sorry, this tour hasn't come at a good time. Oh, I'll be fine. Locked up in the palace on my own. It's not for long. Six weeks. It would fly by. I doubt it. Anyway, I'll see you at the altar. I've... Ask Mrs. Parker Bowles to get in touch with you. Poor ex. Why would you do that? Because she's great fun. I just thought, if ever you wanted company, she's the best company. What about with you and Josh in terms of finding that chemistry? Because yeah. it's such a specific... It's such a specific chemistry. Yeah. It's it... kind of like it's there, but it's not... It's also not there at all. It's a very interesting thing, and I actually don't know if... You can really put it into words because mm. it's so hardly romantic. It's like a tragic chemistry, I yeah. guess. It's real Shakespearean, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, it's that's kinda... such a good way of putting it. But also, I think, because we know we know the outcome. Yeah. So it's kind of exactly. so the tragedy's there before we even sit back and enjoy exactly. these wonderful performances. And that was quite hard for me and Josh to do. It's something we we've, we made sure we were very aware of, mm-hmm. especially in the early days of not playing the ending. It's even in Peter's stage notes, she's celebrating her engagement with her flatmates. Mm. And in the stage notes it says, crushed out, all in one bed together, exhausted but still giddy, delirious, ecstatic. It's a complete fairy tale and it's worth making a note of this moment because this is the happiest, happiest we'll ever, we'll ever see. Oh, it makes me want to cry. I, I know. That was an incredible thing to read. I remember, I completely know. I remember reading that and I've never, I don't think I'll ever forget it when I read that. Because that... I think set the tone for me of what this series was going to be about. 
of capturing her innocence, of her hope, of her honest conviction that she would be saved because her childhood had been so awful in many ways, that she would be saved by this and her happiness and then the complete decline into sadness. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, that moment got me big and strong. But everything with the flatmates was so wonderful because it set up everything that she'd lost in this that she was going to lose, in a sense. Straight in at the deep end. Dinner with the family at Clarence House. So fucking grand. So not Elle's Court. A toast. Two. No more worries. No more flatmates. No more rent collection. <laughs> no more kindergarten. No more cleaning your sister's flat. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Off to your palaces and castles and frocks. And jewels. <laughs> and one day, not too far away, being the fucking queen. <laughs> There's some really lovely ways that her fun personality are shown through as well. And her love of performing as well. She was such a performer. (laughs) She loved it. There was a thing as well where someone asked her what she would have been, I think I read somewhere, and she said she uh, would have been a dancer. She loved ballet, yeah. Yeah. I think she loved ballet and tap. I think all kinds of dance. Do you dance? Did you dance before? This is the funny thing, because this was never in the character description. And also, ask any of my friends, it is a running joke that I cannot dance. I once got told by a teacher at school that I danced like a spider, essentially because I'm quite limmy and I'm very uncoordinated. So increasingly, I sort of realised that reading the scripts and then through conversations with directors and other people that dance would be a big part of Diana's life. And I kind of thought, you guys do know that I'm not a trained dancer at all. But it was actually, it's actually been so much fun. So I started doing, yeah, jazz, tap and ballet classes. Amazing. Did um, you like it? Loved it. Right. Absolutely loved it. <laughs> but it was fun. But the other fun dancey bit, which I loved, was with Ben, Karen, and he was like, okay, so I want this moment where in Ep 3 she's having a ballet lesson. That's something she do, does. It's very structured. It's very, you know takes it very seriously, but also kind of hates it in the same vein as those classes she's doing with her um, scary grandmother. Yeah. And all she wants to do is break out of it. It's very regimented. And um, he was like, I want to do this scene where we have a ballet class and then she comes in for another lesson and the teacher's not there and she just, like, lets go in this moment of just expression and she breaks free and she just has this kind of Billy Elliot moment almost of dance. And I remember I just jumped in and I said... I, can I can I do it? As in, can I? Is that okay if I if we don't choreograph anything? If I just put on music and just dance? And I think anyone but Ben would have been like, maybe not. <laughs> but Ben, being Ben, was like, yeah, love it. <laughs> and so then they sent me some song recommendations. But I really wanted to dance to Share. Do you believe? Yeah. Uh, there's an amazing theatre group called Deviate, and um, part of their one of their shows there's a guy who does an amazing dance to share do you believe so yeah I just said and it's, it wasn't period so they couldn't actually they could never use it in the yeah. series but they said yeah so there was just like a huge stately room with like Rembrandts on the wall outside it was mad and they took all the furniture out and then just blasted share and I could just dance and it was so much fun wow. it was so much fun how is the transformation for you? Because, I mean, I say transformation. There's, you, you have this this kind of natural beauty that resonates, obviously, with her. But in terms of turning into 
the character. Uh, Did you enjoy that side of it? You know, with the, the, with the costumes the and the wigs and all that kind of I'm thing. I'm so fond of the wigs. And it's so fun. <laughs> Everyone is. Even I Tobias was like, yeah. he wants his, he wants to take his eyebrows with him when I he goes. That's brilliant. <laughs> so funny. Weird bleached eyebrows. Yeah, but brilliant. do you enjoy that side of it? I love that side of it. Does it help as well? Yeah, massively. And also the costumes combined with finding the voice and the physicality just means that it is literally almost like taking off my Emma yeah. thing, self, and putting on someone else. Yeah. And it's that thing that Sid and Amy do brilliantly where they, they don't replicate things. No. And in terms of the costumes, there's, yes, there, I mean, the jumper, the bright, I mean, I, rem- I remember the, the pink, pink one. Yeah. Oh, with the, the llamas. Yeah. It's like, that's the real jumper. I know. But that, as you say, it's very clever because they don't replicate. Because as with everything with this series, that's not the point. The point is to find the feeling, yeah. I suppose. And remind people. Exactly. Like the proposal press conference. And the wedding dress. And the, how did you feel? I mean, honestly, it was just surreal. So the wedding dress moment was so, so bizarre. We, and obviously no one had seen it on. And it took about... 10 people to get me into this dress. And then the crew had set up at the end of that corridor of rooms, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Hadn't seen you. Hadn't seen me. And then these two oak doors opened and I was there in the dress and everyone went quiet. It was like the biggest silence I've ever heard. And no one spoke for the entire time we shot it. Everyone whispered. It was bizarre. Really, really haunting. And I felt it then, but I felt this massive presence at that moment. Mm. It felt it felt really strange. It was like I was kind of seeing it all from not in my body. It was really weird. And I felt this presence in the room. I didn't know what it was, but I felt it. And I remember thinking that I was going to mention it to someone, but I was like, Emma, that sounds so stupid. (laughs) Like, don't even. And I remember a week or so later, someone was asking me and I think some of the ADs and... Debbie, who does my hair and makeup, about that day. And someone said, oh, yeah, and there was just this presence in the room. And I thought, oh, my God. Well, it wasn't just me. I was like, did you, did you think that? And they were like, yeah, it was the most haunting thing. Wow. Yeah. It's mental. Because that's another clever way that they've chosen to do it, is that we don't see the wedding. No, which I think is so good. Yeah. A, because you can YouTube it, I think. <laughs> I haven't actually done that, but I think you can. Have you not? I'm no, so- I haven't actually done that. I'm glad they didn't put it in. Yeah, I think so. Because it's also not the interesting bit. No, it's all around it. What it's is. all around it. Yeah. I remember one of the things that stuck with me from that documentary is that she says the night before she was as sick as a parrot um, and couldn't sleep. Yeah, she binged the night before and then woke up in the morning and she had this. she said she had this deathly calm. And it was a very, very interesting thing to play with, almost showing absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Which is very hard, actually, to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Did you find it an emotional experience, playing this role? Incredibly. I bet. Yeah, it's quite um, unsettling. Mm-hmm. Psychologically, she's incredibly complex and moves quite drastically from high to low to self-confidence to none at all. And when you're working, when you're in those shoes for... I don't know, 12, 10, 12 hours a day, 
for like eight months. It's a lot. And you start to think, is if is why it is that I'm feeling like unstable today because of that or because of what's happening? What do I yeah. think and feel? Yeah, it's a lot. But I mean, if I'm feeling that, I don't even, can't even imagine what, what she was, what going, she was through. going through. Yeah, This might sound like a strange question, but I think people, by the time this interview goes out, the, sh- the show will be out. People will be watching yeah. it. They'll, they'll be... Blah. Mental. And I know, and it's lovely because you've been say, saying you've not been allowed to talk about it. It's so nice no, to I'm talk so about it. I'm so excited to talk about it. <laughs> but when people see this, it is, it's going to blow their minds, both in terms of, of how you've brought her to life, basically, and, mm-hmm. and how you've portrayed her. And that in itself is going to bring a lot of attention to you personally. Yeah. And whether that's something you're prepared for in terms of we've seen the paps can't help themselves but watch things on set you know and you've had a taste of that already of of weirdly that kind of pap shot of walking down the street and stuff I remember when I first that day that Ben offered me the part and then we went back to my trailer I remember we were talking about he was like how do you feel (laughs) what this is mad this is so cool I'm so glad I'm here for this moment and then he was like um, I was leaving he said I want you to remember one thing that any time you feel overwhelmed by this and mm-hmm. the public. Use it. A lot of my research was based in trying to figure out what that would mean for someone. Mm-hmm. I guess in a way it's given me a bit of preparation. Yeah, is the stuff of which fairy tales are made. Prince and princess on their wedding day. But fairy tales usually end at this point with the simple phrase, they lived happily ever after. This may be because fairy tales regard marriage as an anticlimax after the romance of courtship. As husband and wife live out their vows, loving and cherishing one another, sharing life's splendors and miseries, achievements and setbacks. They will be transformed in the process. Our faith sees the wedding day not as the place of arrival, but the place where the adventure really begins. I'm Edith Bowman and my special thanks to our guests on this podcast, Ben Caron, Sid Roberts and Amy Roberts and Emma Corrin. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode four of season four called Favourites. As Thatcher's favourite son, Mark, goes missing, the Queen explores whether she too has a favourite child, but will spending time with each of her children give her clarity or reveal her own failings as a parent? Officials, it's a particularly desolate area. The Prime Minister said something interesting today about her son. This is about his sense of direction. <laughs> she described him as her favourite child. Is that interesting? The way she said it was, without equivocation or thought, who would do that? Openly admit to preferring one child to another, especially twins. Any honest parent. What? Any honest parent would admit to having a favourite. 
Who's our favourite? My favourite or your favourite? Is it different? I'd say so, yes. All right, you first. Who's yours? Anne. You said that alarmingly quickly. Well, because it didn't require thought. Philip. And your favourite is... I don't know. Liar. It's true. I really don't know. Your lack of self-knowledge sometimes is breathtaking. On balance, I'd say that was an asset. Everyone knows who your favourite is. Do they? Yes. Well, who? Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts.